today, go ahead and raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible, and this is yours to keep. Um, if you need one at any point in the service, just raise your hand. We will be going through quite a bit of Scripture today. It'll be up on the screen. And instead of um, telling you cute introductions, I'm going to have to just jump right into it because I have a lot of text to share with you this morning. Of course, we're getting into the part where uh, Jesus clears the temple, and that's a lot of fun for me. I love telling this story. But I, I, I just wanted to start with this. I believe that John wrote the book of Revelation first and then wrote the Gospel of John. We've got a lot of evidence that says that. And there's, there's some disagreement among biblical scholars. It, I'd say it's kind of split half and half of the people I've read. Some say, yes, Revelation was written first. And some say, no, it wasn't written yet. John was written first. But I've got some pretty good evidence that John was written after 95 AD. And that's, for some of you, you're thinking, who cares? I don't care when John wrote the book. But I care. <laughs> good, I'll care for you if you don't um, I think it's really important, and here's the reason why I think it's important. Because Revelation was this vivid vision that John had of Jesus. Jesus gave him this picture, and we went through that in depth as a church together. So and if you missed that, feel free to go back on our website and, you know, I'll throw one week. It was this vivid picture that John has now of and it starts out in, in this vivid picture describing Jesus head to toe. And we get to Revelation 1.14. And it says this, The hair on his head was like wool, and his, he was white as snow, and his eyes were a blazing fire. And I think that John would have had this perspective in mind as he's writing the book of Revelation. And, I, and, and to be honest with you, we can't know this for certain. There's, there's not like 100% proof certainty that we, did that, that, that we know this. Unless we find a, a writing from John that says, by the way, this is the order of writing and these are the dates and all that. I mean, you know, we're not going to know for 100% certain. But I want you to keep this picture of Jesus in your mind as we go through this text today. Because it's really important. I want to zero in on his eyes were like a blazing fire, just for a moment. So picture this. John is on the island of Patmos. He's He's been sent there essentially to die. They couldn't, the government of Rome couldn't kill him because he was too, uh, it would have been political suicide for them to kill John. John had mass popularity. And so they really couldn't kill this guy. The best they could do is ostracize him and send him away. I love this picture, though, of Jesus. His eyes are like a blazing fire. It kind of has this double meaning. One, I think it shows Jesus' emotion a little bit. And I, I, I think that Jesus is passionate. I, I think too many times we look at Jesus and, and we sort of make him very gentle, you know, and we make him walk through the town and, oh, hi, how are you? I'm Jesus. You're all forgiven for your sins. And just this very gentle, calming character speaking with a monotone voice. But I think he had this fire in his eyes, this passion, this emotion. And, you know, so many times we, we, we make Jesus very gentle. We wussify. Jesus. And then, but in Revelation 6, 6, it, it talks about how all this calamity is coming for people who believe in Babylon. There's way too much to get into with all that, but I'll just tell you this. It, it, the wealthy of the nations call for rocks to fall on them, and they say, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So we know that Jesus has this wrath still about him in his character, Right? We, we know that there's still some of that. 
we focus too much on the gentleness, and some people focus too much on the wrath, and I think there's a happy balance to focus on. But today I want to talk a little bit about hide us from those eyes, hide us from that face, because there's wrath in the Lamb. Those eyes. Think about what Jesus said. Was he gentle when he was talking about Herod, and he said, go tell that fox? Was he like, oh, well, just go tell that fox? No, he was like, go tell that guy. I got stuff to say to him. And, and then to Peter, when he said, get behind me, Satan, do you think that worked out like, hey, just get behind me, Satan? No, it was like, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're making me go down the wrong path. You're trying to get me in the wrong path. To the Pharisees, he said, you whitewash tombs, you serpents. And then even said, your disciples, you make them travel all around. You make them twice sons of hell as you are. I mean, Jesus had passion, emotion. He had fire in his eyes, right? He, he had all that. He had the gentleness as well. The woman who's caught in adultery. We're going to look at this in chapter 8. The woman who's caught in adultery. And he says, who's condemned you? She says, no one. I said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There's compassion, but there's fire. I think we need both pictures of Jesus in order to see Jesus the way that he really is. Also, this idea of fire in his eyes means that he could see right through you. And we're going to see that in this passage today too. He could see right into your heart. He could peer right into your life. He knows his people because he made you. It said Jesus can see right through us. He could see through the lies. He could see our real motives. He could see our real intentions. So I want to start with that today as we peer in. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to look at the second half of that. Last week we looked at Jesus turning water into wine and how important that was and how important it is just to do whatever he tells you. And this week it's another story, almost in the same thread. But Jesus is now clearing the temple. And it goes right from Galilee now down to Jerusalem. There's a difference there in, in location. So verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem was south of Galilee. In the scriptures, it'll always say Jesus went up or people went up to Jerusalem because uh, not only was Jerusalem on a hill, but, you know, whenever you go north, like if we go to Sacramento, we think, oh, I'm going up to Sacramento. You never say I'm going down to Sacramento, right? If you were going to San Diego, you would never say I'm going up to San Diego. You'd say I'm going down to San Diego because it's, it's south of us, right? Yeah, but Jerusalem was the most holy place. So you, wherever you were coming from, you were always going up to Jerusalem. That's the idea. So in the temple courts, verse 14, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them from all the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what is written. Zeal for your father's house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. 
But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He has those eyes of fire, right? We have three kids, my wife and I. My wife, Desiree, if you don't know her, her name's Desiree. And that's important to the rest of the story. We have three kids, seven, six, and three. And um, we love them. They're wonderful, but they're also psychotic, right? Like, at that age, they're complete psychos, and, and they turn us into psychos sometimes. And I, I say it because I don't want you to think that we have it all together. Right? We're, not like the, we're not like the absolute perfect family who doesn't yell at our kids, because we do sometimes. They're psychos, right? They're crazy. And sometimes they just cause us to lose it, right? And we try, and we restrain ourselves, and we try and be good, godly parents. But every now and then, it's like they've, daddy, 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 and, and you just over and over and over again. The other day I was taking out the trash and the trash bag ripped and, and I never do this, but I was just, whoops. <laughs> never mind, you $600 speaker, I'll kick you. But I kicked the trash can and it just, the trash was all over me and I was just so upset. I just kicked the trash can, you know? And, and my wife, we, one, one day where she told me, she gave me permission to show this. One day where, you know, the kid's room is just such a mess and we, we just had them clean their room and we just helped them clean their room because we try and show them what a clean room We're trying to model what that looks like. It's insanity. And then they, they take their shoes and they just throw them all over the floor and one day Desiree just goes and tosses the shoes down. She takes the clothes off. She goes, now pick it all up and put it away. It's not just you guys that are crazy. It's us too, right? When you have three kids that age, they could do this to you. And so the running joke in our house is that when Jesus flipped over all the tables and Jesus went crazy on the temple, we said Jesus just went all Desiree on the temple. You know, that's like the running joke in our house. <laughs> and and, and we, Desiree and I make that joke all the time. And, you know, we're, we, we laugh about it now. But Jesus goes all Desiree on the temple. It happens sometimes, right? Some of us are, lose our cool. And I'm not sure that Jesus lost his cool. It's like the wrong emotion to, to attribute what Desiree and I, that anger. It's that, that's actually the wrong emotion to attribute that to Jesus. We're going to actually jealousness, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But I want to get into this scripture. So there's a long tradition of selling stuff to people that they need for the Passover. It was actually a good thing. You, you needed to do this. The selling of the things was not wrong. The difference was, we have record that 30, 40 years before this, this market was on the Mount of Olives. So if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you could look out and see where the Mount of Olives is. It's a little bit further off, and it's not too far. You come down into a valley and go up to Jerusalem. But they had this out there. Mount of Olives, and it was this market where you could buy and sell things. And somewhere along the line, these money changers, who were important, by the way, it, we, you know, we give money changers a hard time. They were important because if you, if you were operating in Israel, it was occupied by Rome and you had to use a Roman denarius, which had a picture of Caesar on it, which was essentially breaking this commandment, the second commandment, you should not create an idol. So to the Jewish people, having this coin was just, oh, it was horrible. And, and, and in order to go to the temple in worship, they would have to go change for a shekel, which was, did not have any graven images on it which could be used in worship. 
And, and so the money changers served an important task. The people serving, selling doves, the people selling all these things, they served an important task. But somewhere along the line, they went from serving the people to saying, we can make a little more money if we were right in the temple courtyards. Somewhere along the line, their job went from serving to how much money can we make. And, and they moved the market from the Mount of Olives right into the, the temple area, the court of Gentiles. And so you have to understand, these markets were a messy business. I mean, literally messy. You go into a pet shop today, you don't see any of the you know, animal droppings, maybe a little bit from like rabbits and stuff. But just imagine cattle and sheep and, and birds. And we, we had a bird stuck in our house yesterday. I have no idea. Lucy just goes, Daddy, there's a bird in our house. And I'm like, what? How is there a bird in our house? And, and we went and we had to like kind of corner it and I was able to capture it with my hand. I was so proud of myself. And I was trying to take a picture of it outside and it flew out of my hands. Um, but in any case, we, it's off in safety now. Um, but they make a huge mess. We, we, I remember a long time ago, we had a bird caught in here in the sanctuary and there was some bird droppings in the sanctuary. And it was our job as a youth group to, to help get it out of here. And I don't even remember how that happened or where it went, but the bird eventually left, but they make a huge mess, which would have not been good for temple worship, by the way. You would have made yourself unclean in this market. And so the whole idea of keeping it outside the temple and keeping the temple pure and clean, they said, yeah, we can sacrifice that for some more money. That's kind of what they figured. And, you know, hear me, making money isn't a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But in, as a Christian, and our life and our work ought to be in service to others. Are you a low-level employee? Serve your boss. Are you a high-level employee? Serve your employees. Our job as a Christian in the workforce is to serve and to show off Jesus. But when you're just there to collect a paycheck, sometimes there's no redeemable purpose to that work. Your life will simply become about money and acquiring things and, and all that. And by the way, this is one of the best reasons that I could think of to tithe. Um, because every time you tithe, it's a declaration that this doesn't define me. That this isn't my God. That this isn't my master, but this is the Lord's. That's one of the best reasons I could think to tithe. I mean, there's a lot of great reasons, but I think that's one of the best reasons. is an act of worship to lay it down before Jesus. Anyways, as we move on. Jesus specifically goes after one group of people. If you look at verse 16, here's what it says. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, why didn't he go after everybody else? He went after those who sold doves. One of the ways that we need to, like I said this before, one of the ways we need to understand the book of John is that it's constantly pointing back to Genesis. And John here points back to himself. Where do we see a dove? Back in the book of John, when it descends onto Jesus as the Holy Spirit, right? Where else do we see a dove in Genesis? Noah's Ark, where a dove showed that it's safe, to, to, that God has provided. The dove is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying to those who sold doves is, is um, the Holy Spirit is not for grabs. Quit trying to sell godliness. Now, there would be a lot of similarities to this situation to late-night um, televangelism. 
Send in your last dime so God can bless you. Right? See, see that there's nothing wrong with giving, but there's a problem when there's manipulation in giving. There's nothing wrong with giving or even asking for, for people to give to, to God's work, but there's a problem when there's manipulation in giving. And I don't think God likes that. I think he's going after the, the dove merchants because they, they represented the Holy Spirit. And he's trying to say, you're trying to buy and sell godliness here. You can't buy it. It's something that's in your life. There's nothing wrong with selling a dove. People needed doves for worship. They needed them. But it made this intentional shift. It went from strictly this utility thing to how much money can we make by selling these people's sacrifices. Look at this verse. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many, in, in, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from faith and pierced, um, and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I don't want to pick, paint the wrong picture here. It's okay to make money. It's okay to make plenty of money. That's fine. There, there's nothing wrong with that. The scriptures don't say, if you're wealthy, then you're evil. It says it's a little harder if you're wealthy. Because sometimes that, there's so, something so alluring about wealth that you find your identity in it. And I think that's what the scriptures are trying to say about wealth. But what he's saying is, when you love money, when money is just how you define yourself, I'm going to make more, make more, make more. My life is all about money. Then your life begins to be centered around money. You begin to worship the God of money. It will always come first. When you love money, it will always come first. We are basically creatures of love. Aristotle talked about this. That, that we are basically creatures that, that love. And we do what's in line with whatever we love. Right? So if you love money, always go after that. So what he's saying is you put God first and don't become a lover of money. And this, this is what it says. The disciples remembered this psalm. Zeal for my father's house will consume me. Zeal for my father's house will consume me. I want to talk about the specific emotion that Jesus has while he's doing all of this. The word zeal is synonymous in the Old Testament with the word jealousy. Zealous? Jealous. They, they actually are some of the same root words. And you've heard that God is a jealous God. And what is that all about? Because it's okay. Like, it, you read the whole Bible, you realize in all of the different lists of sins, that's a sin for me, to be jealous. But not for God. What's with the double standard, right? Like, why can God be jealous? What's, what's the deal with that? And so I want to explain this to you today, because I think this is the emotion that Jesus had as he walked into this temple court. This zealous, this jealousness. Jealousy is a confusing thing because, like I said, it's a sin for everybody else in the Bible except for God. And in almost every list, people were jealous. When you look at stories, Saul was consumed with jealousy over David. Normal jealousy and, and envy, it's kind of all the same right there. When you look at David and Saul, 
here's Saul. He's this king, but he sort of lost his mantle. And David comes. He's handsome. He's young. He's a musician. He's a poet. And people are singing his song. Saul has killed his thousands. David tens of thousands. And, and, and Saul kind of loses it, right? And so he begins to throw spears at David. He tries to kill this guy who is his son-in-law. And this guy who he loves, but he tries to kill him. See, human jealousy is something that happens when love is removed. Human jealousy is something that happens when love is removed. As David is gaining popularity, Saul is losing the love of his people, and therefore he's becoming jealous. It causes him a deep depression, and like I said, he eventually tries to murder David. Good ringtone. Unless somebody has a little mini guitar in here. That was awesome. Okay. And then there's godly jealousy. So there's human jealousy. It's like when love is removed, then I got to do whatever I can to get it back at whatever cost, and I'm angry, and I, whatever. I, I, I'm not doing good. And then there's godly jealousy. So look at, um, we'll put this up on the screen, 2 Corinthians eleven two through 4. I am jealous for you with the godly jealousy. I promise to you one, um, one I'm sorry, I promise, ah, sometimes I got to start all over. I'm jealous with you. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the Spirit's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray by your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel than one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So here's what Paul is saying to his people. He's saying, I've got this jealous love for you. It's an angered love, right? But it's, it's right, it's correct for him to be angry. Now he's saying, what, the path you're going down is a bad path for you. Other people are coming and spouting out all these lies, and you're buying, you're just eating it up. And I'm angry, and I've got this angered love for you. Now, get this. The bad kind of jealousy is love that turns to anger. But the godly jealousy is angered love that stays love, right? So bad jealousy, just angry. Good jealousy, Love that's angered, but it still remains love. And I think this is at times what God has for us. This is what Jesus was experiencing in this whole uh, temple situation. Another pastor, Timothy Keller, puts it like this. Godly jealousy is love fighting extinction. Normal jealousy is love gone extinct. I love that definition. Godly jealousy is love fighting extinction. Normal jealousy is love gone extinct. Godly jealousy stays committed to rescuing the broken. Godly jealousy is committed to to winning back what was once lost. See, when we say that God is a jealous God, he came to earth as part of his character to rescue us back, to rescue back what was once lost. Think about it. When the first humans willfully disobeyed their creator, he drove them out of the garden, but he never stopped trying to rescue them, right? Right? An angry God would just drive out of the garden and say, I'm done with you, I'm going to create something new, right? But God chased him out of the garden because he was angry that they broke his commandment to not eat from the tree. But he never stopped pursuing them. 
never stops pursuing them. This is why he came to earth. He never stopped loving us. God is committed to rescuing the broken relationships and winning back, which was one, that's what was once lost. He's jealous for us. And another way of saying this is that he is zealous for us. See, when we hear this verse, zealous, um, being zealous for my father's house is consumed. Jesus was consumed with this. And I don't think it was just because I want to see the temple pure. I think he was really sad about those merchants. I think what really got to him was these merchants who were, who were once performing this great service, but now they loved the money and they were trying to sell godliness. Oh, take a dove. Oh, take this, take that. And they specifically moved this area because of that. I think he wants these merchants back. And see, it's symbolic of what all humanity is doing. Now, of course, he cared about the temple, but what he was really zealous for was the people in that moment that he wanted back in his life. To get back to the text this morning. So we see Jesus walking into this temple situation. He's flipping over a couple tables. He's upset, right? But he's upset with love. He's not just angry. He's upset with love. And so many times, I mean, we do this with our kids, right? We get upset with them in love because we don't want them to turn out to be messy adults, right? That's why we don't like, clean your room because we love you. We want you to be married and out of my house one day, right? And, and not be a total disaster. That's why we're, we're hard on you kids. So John uh, 2, verse 18 through 22 says this. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple has, that he was spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture about the words that he had spoken. A little side note that the author puts in here, John, that they didn't really recall this until after he was dead kind of the book of John in a nutshell for me. That you read the book of John and, and as you work with it and, and as you listen to it and Jesus' words and all that, you get it on one level, but then after a little while you have this experience and you get it on a completely different level. That's why I love teaching this book because there's different layers and richness and depth of meaning to the entire book of John because while you'll get it somewhat today, you'll get it even better tomorrow if you keep this text in front of you. And remember how I said, first off, that I think Revelation was written before the book of John. I want to get back to this picture here. So Jesus is standing there saying, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. But of course, he was talking about his own life, his own person. At the very end of Revelation chapter 21, John is having this vision of what the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, what it all looks like. And in there, in verse 22, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I just imagine John going back and writing this account of what happened with this in mind. You have to enter have the, the whole picture in view here. That Jesus is the new temple. 
See, the temple was put in place specifically. It was built specifically to be the center of the community. And in the center of that was the Holy of Holies. And and that was the idea that God will dwell in the center of his community. That's the whole idea of the temple. And you could go there for ritual sacrifice. But somewhere along the way, the people went from relationship with God to loving the building. And the building being the most important part. The building being the most important thing. We could be in danger of doing that too as Christians when you have a building as a church. Like, oh, the building's it. That's the mission. No, it's not. It's a building. It's a beautiful building, but it's just a building. You are the church. And the idea is that somewhere along the line, people are losing relationship with God and worshiping this temple. The interesting thing when you go back, God never said, please build me a temple. This was David's idea. This was David's doing, King David, early on. But God allowed it. But people, after a while, began worshiping this temple. Not necessarily literally worshiping it, but it became an idol to them. So who do we put our faith in, a building or a person? And Jesus is standing there in dichotomy to the temple, saying the true, the true idea of religion is not to have this temple, not to worship this temple, but is to be in relationship with me. That's what it really means here, to get back to relationship with the living temple. People are trying to be religious, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. They were, they were trying to show their devotion by worshiping in and around the temple. But somewhere along the line, that, that gets a little bit muddied and confused. And I think what this is all about is Jesus saying, I, I'm the true temple. The true temple is about having relationship with people. The true everlasting life is about knowing me, knowing Jesus. And this last little bit of John is kind of a rough text. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people, and he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So there's more signs that Jesus performed. But this text is tough because it says he knew all people. He did not need testimony from us. He knows us. He's got those eyes of fire again. And he knows us. He peers deeply into who we are and knows us. I wonder if John is remembering um, what we talked about in the beginning, about Jesus' penetrating eyes. Jesus looks at us and knows. He knows the deep, dark things. He knows the secret things. He knows... The good things, he knows the horrible things. He has eyes that peer into your heart. And he knows you. And you know what the miraculous thing is? Is that I don't think that he's just purely angry when we don't have a relationship with him. I think that he's got this stage of angry with love. And I think he wants to come into your life over some tables, right? Some tables that might just... Sort of be in opposition to him. So many of us, even, even when we become a Christian, even when we start following Jesus, after the years, sometimes resentment will build up, sometimes anger will build up, sometimes greed will build up. There, there's these little tables that we build in our hearts that, that I think Jesus just needs to come in and flip over every now and then because they're damaging to our relationship with him. They're damaging to our relationship with others. Maybe he needs to flip over your ego. Maybe your pride. Maybe he needs to 
flip over your jealousy. Maybe he needs to flip over the table of your past. Maybe he needs to flip over the table of your love of money. Maybe he just wants to flip over that table that you've staked your whole entire being on politics. And he just needs to flip that table over today. Maybe he just needs to flip over the table that has gossip so squarely on it. And that needs to be flipped over. Maybe he needs to flip over the table of anger in your life today. I don't know where you're at with Jesus, but maybe there's some tables in your heart that God needs to flip over today because Jesus is love fighting extinction. He is fighting that extinction of love in all of our hearts. He sees you just as you are. Where you're at, the deep, the dark, the horrible, the great, he sees it all. And see, Jesus, he's the jealous God, which means he loves us so much, he's not willing to not have a relationship with us. See, just, a, just human jealousy is like, forget that, I'm done. And the godly jealousy is, I love you so much, this is wrong for you, this is hurtful for you, I need to flip that table over so it's no longer a problem in your life. I don't know what that is for you today, but as we invite the worship team back up, I just want to invite you. Maybe you've got some table in your heart that's got like gossip or something squarely on it. Like, you know, there's, I even said politics. There's nothing wrong with following politics, but maybe that's what you stake, put all your eggs in that basket in. All your hope there rather than in Jesus. I don't know what that is. Too many of us are doing that today. And so many times it just needs to be flipped over. He knows your human condition, He has the eyes of fire that sees your junk on the table. And he just wants to help you by flipping it over. Let's pray. Father, there's some junk in our lives. You know this. You peer deeply into the human condition, God. Father, as I picture you right now, as I picture Jesus with these eyes of fire. You, Lord, you could see deeply into the heart of man, men and women. And God, you were jealous for us. You were jealous for us. God, you love us. You're not willing to just let us off in our own devices. But God, there's some tables you want to flip over in our hearts. Maybe it's greed. God, and we give that to you. I just want to encourage you today. If you're, if you're here, I just want to give you one second, just alone with God, to flip that table over and just confess it to him, just silently where you're at. Maybe you need to confess that you got lust on your table. Maybe you need to confess that you've got arrogance on your table. Maybe you need to confess you have hate on your table. Maybe you need to confess you got pride on your table. Maybe you need to confess your anger before God this morning. Maybe it's gossip. Whatever it is, you know it. It's between you and the Lord. And we just pray that you would confess that between you and God this morning. And as you confess that, freedom comes when God flips these tables over. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.